Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's episode 180 for April 28th, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about the pros and cons of a solid surface countertop for a workbench, adjustable height workbenches, and how to use a spoke shave. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Festool. With the TS55 REQ track saw, your first cut is the finish cut. See how the new TS55 delivers straight, glue-ready, splinter-free results in the shop and on the job site at FestoolUSA.com. All right, I'd also like to thank one of our wonderful donors, Jeff H., for sending in a donation. We appreciate that. And if you want to help out the show, you can do that too. Go to woodtalkshow.com and look for the links to sign up for either a recurring donation, small amounts, or a one-time donation. Anything you could do would help out. Helps us keep uh, nice, colorful colors in our show notes. Which is always because nice. it makes the spring look so much better. <laughs> it really does. The, <laughs> the flowers smell better. Uh, yes. It just it improves everything. Uh, I feel so much lighter today because of these colors. <laughs> That's true. All right, let's move into what's on the bench. Get to the good stuff right away here. Uh, for me, you know what? Not a whole lot. I've been prepping more for weekend with wood, which is coming up very quickly. And since I'm talking about finishing, I am preparing some sample boards. You know, if you're going to do a finishing talk, part of the problem with finishing is the time between coats of finish. So if I'm like demonstrating the process of applying an oil-based finish, it's actually pretty difficult to be like, now on the second coat, you do this because I just got here. Like, right. <laughs> this right. is my first coat. Let's, and you can't really go, oh, let's just pretend this is the second coat. Cause what if you want to sand or, you know, so they're going to be making up some test boards for me ahead of time with various numbers of coats on them. But I don't know what condition they're going to be in when I get there. I don't know if, you know, who's applying the finish. So I'm making a few test boards ahead of time that I'm actually <laughs> going to pack in my luggage and uh, lug out with me just as kind of backups or samples uh, of various things you could do with these uh, different finishes. So I've been focused on making those boards, which is uh, kind of boring, but necessary. I was just going to say, I'm like, I always thought it was more fun when you, you did it right there. And then you're like, all right, everybody, let's just wait. <laughs> let's Welcome wait. Back to you, drive. <laughs> Four to six hours. I don't uh... want to move on with the conversation <laughs> right now or the rest of the lesson because it will ruin what will happen until yeah. these boards dry. Right. It's like an impromptu ask me anything for the next 24 hours. Right. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that wouldn't be tiring at all. Uh, you know, well, the cool thing I about the. Always, I was really floored when I was down at the, the Woodwright School <clears throat> a couple of years ago. Roy was preparing for one of the shows, I think, in the current season. Mm-hmm. And you kind of you, you watch the show and you realize, you know, how many times he moves from one step to another, like in the process. But you never actually realized how many times he had to build the project in order to get through one show. You know, all the different setups and things that, you know, OK, now time has elapsed and here we are with the molding already done. Yeah. That's crazy when you start to think through how am I going to do this presentation and how am I possibly going to compress what would take like three hours for this one step. It's nuts. If it were a local event, it'd be a little bit easier for me. I could have everything there. I could just make sure I've I've got it all. But here it's a little bit risky because I may get there and something completely uh, integral to the conversation, very important, may not be there for me. Uh, So we'll see. But either way, you know, one one thing that I got out of this is sort of a... I don't know, confirming something I already knew, but try to always hammer home with people is the importance of test boards. 
And right. it, like in doing this, just playing with different finishes, different application methods, um, really, I plan to talk a lot about uh, the wiping varnish type of finish, which if anyone who's seen my DVD, they saw me focus on the wiping varnish method that's a little bit more like, um, I don't know, like it's an easy method of brushing on. So you have a very, a fairly wet rag that you're applying the material with and leaving a nice wet layer. And that's the way to build it up a little bit faster. But there's also an application method that involves more or less wiping on and wiping off or just rubbing in and wiping on a very, very thin coat and you build up your coats that way. But that's a much more close to the wood. So there's two different ways to do it. And it's important to show the results, the end results of this. And I, people struggle so much with finishes sometimes. And I think if they just took the time to do this on a piece that really doesn't matter, just a scrap piece, it would be incredibly enlightening uh, to learn the application process, like what to expect, what problems you might run into. And it's a piece that doesn't matter. So there's no risk there. Um, I wish people would do that a little bit more because I don't think finishing has to be as hard as as a lot of people make it out to be. You know, it's it's funny you say that because that is something, again, I struggle with finishing. That's why polyurethane is pretty much the only thing I do. Mm-hmm. But just recently, uh, not only while I was perfecting my polyurethane, I was playing with like some boiled linseed oil. I mean, like, you know, and the funny thing is people here like, what do you mean you've never experimented with that before? <laughs> when it comes to the penetrating oils, I think other than a TV guide holder that I made in, oh, no, actually used polyurethane on that. That was in middle school. <laughs> um you know, I've, I've never really used them and I'm, I'm kind of intimidated. And there's that part of me that's like, how long do you let it penetrate? How do you know when it's <laughs> penetrated? Do I right. need to keep adding more? Because as soon as I put it on, it suddenly disappeared. Sure. And, sure. you know, playing around with, like you're saying, just do like the scrap boards. That's just, it is. It's amazing. And it's a great way to use up some of that scrap. That it is. Agreed. I've always been that kind of wipe on, wipe off ever since David Marks showed me how to do that. Ah, uh, Yeah. It's, you know, and whether or not he actually does that, actually, you could probably answer that, Mark. But, you know, on the show, because, of course, he had to finish in the last 45 seconds of the show. Yeah, yeah. It was, he pulled out his brush, brushed it on, and immediately followed up with the rag. It was also a very karate kid. <laughs> right, yeah. It, that That is a very valid way to do it. And I do believe that's how David gets most of his finishes. What you don't see is he might do a little bit of final uh, finishing of the finish to get that glass smooth feel that you get. Because even when you do it that method, you still have a long dry time. And in all of our shops, there's dust all over the place. So what do you do in your final coat if there's little nibs and dust particles? How do you handle that? Um, that's all stuff that they would never be able to get into uh, on television. But it's uh, absolutely uh, critical to getting a good finish and making you happy with your finish, making you want to finish your projects because you know no matter what happens, you're going to get a good-looking, successful, sort of a very well-protected project. Uh, and yeah. I think I think that's what's missing. A lot of people have too many failures in their heads that like, oh, this is, this is the part I hate because this is where all my work goes to crap because I don't know how to get a good finish on, you know? Right, uh, exactly. It's unfortunate, but... Uh, what it's funny is though, when you see the finishers that can take a piece of crap and make it look really, really awesome. Yeah. Those are the ones <laughs> I need to hire them. It'd be like all of my projects would turn out museum quality. <laughs> we call them painters. <laughs> Very, you yeah, know, we've, we've had this conversation before about <laughs> like the rabbit holes of woodworking mm-hmm. and how you could spend a bunch of time on one area. I, I hesitate to say that finishing could be that way, like yeah. for me, just as far as the desire to do it. But I think once you kind of open that Pandora's box, if you will, I think of somebody like Charles Neal, who can color anything and make it look like anything else. And his coloring DVD is fantastic, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the the And that, there comes a lot of testing there and playing around with different colors in order to get just the right color, the right grain fill and everything. And I think once you kind of got 
just a little bit good at it, it could become another one of those rabbit holes that you could fall down and, and you know, become a challenge. Okay, now I'm going to take this crappy looking board and turn it into something pretty. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just one of those areas that some people call a career. You know, there are people yeah. who will just do finishing and specialize in that. And uh, because of that, it is something that you could totally get lost in and, uh, you know, dedicate 10 years of your woodworking career to and still not learn everything. Right. Um, right. And have plenty of business after you got good at it because there's a lot of woodworkers out yeah. there. Yeah. Can you finish this for me? To finish for them. Totally. You know what the number one rule to simplify your finishing is? I'd have is somebody else, else do, it. do it. That is a good one. I should have thought of that. Uh, no, is to stop using stain. Like, I, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you said that because that's right now this project that I am working on. Again, it's like one of those we want to go with something really dark. Uh, can you stain, say, like a, a lighter wood? And I'm like, how about we go with the wood that you want trying to mimic? <laughs> I mean, the problem it's so much easier said than done. Obviously, you can't always afford to get the best wood, or a client's not willing to pay for it, so you have to use coloring agents. But as soon as you bring in stains and coloring agents into the conversation, everything gets 10 times harder. It, does, it doesn't have to. I mean, you do it right, and it's not that bad. But I mean, for the did, average person... Some, I did some research into this because you see this at every level, all the way up in, into the wholesale side of things where somebody's getting you know, moldings or flooring for an entire house. Yeah. And the, you know, the hourly rate of the people that do the staining and the finishing is not cheap. Mm-hmm. Unless you really want a crappy job. The people who do a good job of it, um, you know, by the time you add all that in, it's not, you're not saving that much money. So if you want something dark, buy walnut. Well, I don't want to spend that much money per board foot. Okay, well, you know, you're adding a bunch on the finishing side. And I'll, I'll be honest, in some instances, yes, it was cheaper to get it stained, but not by much. Well, only if you're, not very I mean, much at all. you're talking about if you're paying someone else to do it. Right. I mean, because I I mean, if you're doing it yourself, it's just the cost of the uh, your headache and the cost of the stain. (laughs) Right. Well, and and like I was telling this this current person right now, I'm like we with the color we're working on. Of course, I was using a dye. They really wanted to go with the stain, but I was able to at least get them to go in the direction of a dye. But then every time I would take over a sample board to them, like, well, what do you think about this now? Can we get it darker? And I said, you might as well just go with the paint, because (laughs) the more you have me adding on this, the pigment's starting to darken on this, and, you know, it's really starting to add more layers. You're going to lose all of that grain that you said that you really wanted. Yeah. So I think at this point, let's cut our losses, and next time, you know, let's be willing to maybe put out the money for it, because... Uh, in the end, I think both of us will be happy. But, you know, the other side of the coin here is if you do get good and you practice and you know how to manipulate and, uh, you know, wield stain like a ninja, uh, you can take crappy woods like that we were talking about with Charles Neal. You could take crap woods and have a very low material investment in your projects and, you know, make them for other people and clients who are going to be absolutely happy with them because you made it look like it's uh, mahogany or you made uh, poplar look like cherry or, you know, you, right. you could do amazing well, things and uh, save money and make a good quality product at the same time. Well, isn't that what they did like in all those like mansions and plantations and stuff was like one of those, well, we can't really afford the mahogany, but we've got this <laughs> awesome artist down the road who will bring in on a horse and buggy and have them make it look like it. <laughs> Dude, you know, speaking of like, uh, I don't know, it just was in my head. We're talking about finishing and and like weird choices uh, that clients make. I was at a Chinese restaurant today for lunch and we eat there all the time. This is the first time I noticed the paneling on the wall and one of the buffets as they go out has uh, like, it's all really nice looking veneer. And I took a close look at it and I was just like, 
man, this it's the most beautiful veneer, but the the worst possible choices. So one <laughs> one wall is paneled with what looks like a, it just looks like a straight grain babinga veneer. I mean, very impressive for a Chinese buffet. And uh, and the top chair chair rail chair rail chair rail chair rail, chair rail molding uh, is very ornate, so it's completely clashing with this babinga paneling. And then on the the adjacent um, paneling, which is where the buffet is, is like a um, it almost looks like either a maple burl that's been stained sort of a burgundy color, or a babinga burl. And so, so it's right next to everything is right next to each other. And then on top of it is a sort of maroon, uh, granite top surface for the, the, the food surface. And it's just so much weird colors and crap (laughs) mishmashed together, but things that have so much potential beauty, but just used incorrectly and used, uh, almost too much. Um, how in the world does that relate to this conversation? Um, because we were talking about hiding wood. I don't know. Something you I said. You know you're just that having I want flashbacks to want. Dumplings and I could have brought some home for you. Uh, I can't. I, I just can't justify why I even brought that up. So my apologies. Shannon, what's up in your shop? <laughs> <laughs> your turn to well, go off on a tangent. In, in an effort to extend that tangential conversation. Um, <laughs> no, I got nothing. Uh, it's been it's been one of those weeks where this stupid day job has me working 70, 80 hours. Stupid you know, day job. Do other stuff. <laughs> you know, the novelty of working at a lumber yard, it's cool, but I don't, I'm, I'm in marketing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yeah, I sit at a desk basically and play with a website and email campaigns. So yeah, it's just been, it's just been a crazy busy week. I got into my shop for about a half an hour this weekend. Um, and then I spent a fair amount of time woodworking behind the video editor um, so that I could put out a video this morning in the hand tool school. But yeah, it's just one of those things. I haven't been able to get in there and uh, really, really, really want to. But it's just a reminder that I don't do this woodworking thing full time yet. Yes, your company owns you. Yes, absolutely. And oh. when you said that working at a lumber yard is cool, we probably should point out that you're referring to just woodworkers would find that that's cool. Yeah, that, <laughs> actually, that's true. There's a lot of people who work at the lumber yard who do not think it's cool to everyone yeah. else. It's just a job, right? Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> dreaming of the day when they can go do something far, far different. A lot mm-hmm. of times it actually can be torture. <laughs> you sit there oh, yeah, all those slivers, watch this beautiful wood come through and, and go out again, knowing that someone's going to take that wide board and rip it into two inch wide style stock. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sometimes can be a little bit, a little bit torturous. Does anybody ever like hide boards to make sure that there's certain individuals that can't get a hold of them? Like they see them coming and they're like, everybody hide those beautiful pieces. Bring out the crappy stuff. (laughs) No, kind of the opposite, actually. Oh, (laughs) here comes this guy. He's got deep pockets. Bring out the good stuff. (laughs) Nice. I wish they would bring out the good stuff for me. And my place is like, who are you? Do you ever you actually? Oh, you're in the system. Okay. Yeah. yeah, sure you are. Uh huh. Yeah. That's the problem. I'm, I'm one of the small guys. They don't care. Maybe um, they think that you're the guy that's coming from the Chinese restaurant to do more work. That's what it is. You know, this guy, you wouldn't believe the combinations of woods he ordered last time. It's almost insane. We shouldn't let him do it. Yeah. All right, Matt, what about you? Well, the only thing I have going on is, again, kind of talking about the client that I'm working with that I was trying to get the, the color with and stuff. Uh, the bathroom cabinet is moving forward. The one thing I, I did this weekend and – I, I'm glad I did it because it means that we're making forward progress, but I hate installing hardware, especially uh, kind of complicated hinges, mm. which more or less means that it's it's the European hinges and all I really have to do is just drill a hole for the cup to sit into and then attach it to the rest of the body. 
other than drilling the hole and doing all the alignment and stuff, I love it when I get these things in place because these European style hinges, uh, it, it's so awesome that they can compensate for all of my bad joinery. <laughs> yeah. You know, nothing is better, especially when I have it. I always, I'm using them on inset doors and it's so fantastic though. And I know if I would use any other hinges, my reveals would look so horrible. <laughs> but with these, as long as the door panels are at least moderately square, these will take care of the rest for me. They do have a remarkable amount of adjustment in them, don't they? They yeah. do. I mean, it's just, in fact, I panicked on one set because the way that I had them, I guess I just didn't stick my head far enough into the cabinet and I wanted to make sure that they would raise up and down to give me that reveal just the right way. And I couldn't find that up and down mechanism. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my God, how am I going to, I'm going to have to take it off and I'm going to have to do this. And then finally I like reached in and I looked and I'm like, oh, there they are. Doo, yeah. doo. There we go. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, I love those things. Those are great. I did all the doors in the shop with them and same exact thing. Like if something was just slightly off, you just kind of have to get it in the ballpark and then you could use the fine adjustment to kind of crank it up, down, in, out, angle it, contort it one way or the other. It's great. <laughs> well, the other thing I love is the fact that uh, say like there, for some reason, because this happens once in a while, uh, that maybe the, uh, the the door's got a little slight bow to it for some reason, or maybe the the cabinet that you're putting it into, I don't know, the face frame's got a little bow to it or something. I love that I can just simply, again, kind of like, I'll move this one in a little, and I will move this one. Oh, look, now it's flush. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, definitely. That was my favorite. In fact, I, I probably spent more time adjusting those than it actually took me to put them in place. But again, it was like one of those, I can do this. Now I can undo it. I can do this. That's awesome. Love it. Love it. All right, let's move into what's new. Got a couple of links, fun stuff to share with you. The first one here is a video from Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs Mike Rowe. You guys know him? Hey, Mike's been a lot of air on Wood Talk recently. Yeah, he's actually, it seems like every time, uh, every couple of weeks, there's something new from him. He's definitely an advocate of like, you know, handwork, working with your hands and blue collar work and just kind of, I don't know. That's I commented on one of his videos recently that he should run for president. I mean, I, I, <laughs> no kidding. I would vote for this guy. And it's interesting because I don't know what he's doing. Like, what is he doing now for work? Because I, I don't I don't have cable anymore. So is Dirty Jobs even on anymore other than reruns? Are they doing no, new I seasons? I think so. Making all the money off commercials and voiceover. <laughs> yeah, what's he do? The Ford commercial, I think it is, or it, yeah, yeah, one of those. Yeah. So I'm like, what is this guy doing other than like beefing himself up for a a, a political run here or something? But anyway, Maybe he's found the secret to making money on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, getting a getting a crap ton of views. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, good good videos. Anything you look up, I mean, the guy's so well spoken. He's you know got a, a nice voice to listen to. But this one in particular was a short video. It looks like he's at some sort of a convention. Um, and it's he's talking about the skills gap. This is only a minute and a half long, so I figure I'm just going to play it. Why the heck not? Because it transfers yeah. very well. Just picture Mike Rose's face talking, and it's a lot like the video. Okay. All right, I'll play it real quick. Well, everybody talks about high unemployment. High unemployment's obviously a big problem, but it seems to me that the real problem is the skills gap, because the skills gap shows us that there are opportunities available, millions of them, in fact, and the problem seems to be that those opportunities don't get celebrated the same way the opportunities that come with a four-year degree get celebrated. This has been going on for decades, I think. There's a lot of bad advice out there, and kids hear the same steady message over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? A four-year degree is your best path to happiness, but maybe that's not true. In fact, it seems like the jobs that are available today, the really good jobs that can pay upwards of six figures, most of those require some kind of vocational background, right? And 
while that's a fact, we discourage a vocational background at the same time. So we're kind of disconnected from all of that, in my opinion. And it seems to me if we want to close the skills gap, we have to start valuing something in a different way. We have to start celebrating hard work and smart work at the same time. And we have to start looking at that space between blue collar and white collar as the gap into which all these jobs have fallen. We need to close that gap and we need to start celebrating the opportunities that are available right now, today, in my humble opinion. Very nice. Seriously, what office is he running for? I don't know. I'd vote for it, Because that's what it sounds like. Doesn't and, it? and you're right. I'd vote for the dude. Yeah. I mean, but that sounded like a stump speech to me. Yeah, and a lot of his stuff is like for the office of the most awesome guy in the world. <laughs> well, the, the interviews he he does these days, it's all about this this exact topic, you know, about how there's too much emphasis put on the four year degree, and that everyone sort of goes through our school systems thinking that white collar jobs are the future, and parents are trying to push their kids toward that. Uh, but there's a lot of great jobs that are you know opportunities being missed because people don't have the vocational skills. Um, right. that, that used to be there in the past. So um, really good stuff. And by the way, if I, if someone told me that smoking a pack a day might get me somewhere close to Mike Rose voice, I might just do it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you one bit. I I could totally be like, just you'd walk into a, a, a voiceover manager's office and just yeah. be like, I'm ready. Just give me a script. <laughs> I don't know what it is. There's like, I have like uh man, man crush, but not in the way, you know, don't take it the wrong way guys. Okay. Right. I'm talking about like man just, envy. How about uh, that? Yeah. Sort of a, man a voice crush bro, bromance type thing Uh, for, for dudes that have just really good speaking voices. I respect it a lot. I think it's very cool. So that's how I got my spot on the show. That's what it is. We didn't, it didn't matter what you knew. It was like, does he, does he have a very manly speaking voice? Okay. He's, he's got it. You're in. Yeah, there was another person who was really, really knowledgeable in woodworking. I don't think that ev- episode ever made the air because we're like, oh, God, the Mm-mm. voice is so great. His voice was in, like Jerry Lewis. So. voice was in the wrong octave. Right. Uh, anyway, micro, good stuff. Check out any of his videos online. It's really good. Um, maybe I could, maybe we can convince him to come on the show. What do you think about that? If, I mean, if he's, awesome. if he's really trying to, like, you know, public office type thing, you know, he might be desperate yeah. to, to get some extra attention. Why not? If he wants to reach, <laughs> you know, 10,000 people instead of a couple million, he should uh, come on our show. Hey, we get like 35,000 downloads, so. All right. Sure. All right. Well, we could have him do the entire what's new, pull of the week, and kickback, <laughs> and just, then he could read the questions for us, Yes, and then we'll just answer them. It won't even be an interview. We'll just have him do the show. Exactly. And we'll just listen. Oh, this is it's a win-win for all of us. This is I, good Mike, stuff. if you're listening, Mike's people or somebody who might know Mike as in like walk past him once in a while, let him know where, you know, <laughs> we have an opportunity for him. He's a regular guy. You just probably, you probably just run into him at Burger King or something. Yeah. He's usually running out, picking up paper <laughs> towel, I think, yeah. for his mom. <laughs> right. All right. Well, hey, let's move on. We had a, another link here and this came in from David and he says, quote, even the legs have a feline feel. So hopefully, I know you guys aren't big cat people, but he sent this really neat looking uh, uh, post here. In fact, I'm going to try and bring it up. Every time I I click on this, I end up erasing everything. But this was a really neat table design that's kind of, like he says, it's got this really neat looking uh, uh, lines to it. And uh, if I remember right, this is also the one that it's a doubles as a desk slash cat house. Like there's tunnels in it and everything. We saw that, and I looked at my cat and said, I don't like you enough to do this. <laughs> is Hamlet, but if I did, is, I might almost consider it. Is Hamlet overweight? 
No, surprisingly, for as much as that cat eats, he does not. <laughs> well, it's like he sleeps. It's one of those uh, designs where it's got a lot of little tunnels and small holes in it that I'd Seriously. imagine like a fatter cat might get stuck. I <laughs> almost would might do do that on purpose, like get the right dimension. Like, okay, yeah. so he's this <laughs> circumference. I will make it one smaller. Honey, why does the coffee table smell so bad? Where's the cat, by the way? Oh, hmm, there he is. All right, so I cool. um, think you got the next one, Shannon. Sorry, I'm looking at the coffee table. You can enjoy that later, sir. All right, this comes from Dane. He calls it, he says, inventing a better mousetrap or axe. And he says that he thinks I should do uh, a Wood Talk review for this next axe design. You You may have seen this. It's worked its way around the web a little bit. Um, I, I took a look at this, and I immediately was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Um. And then I was backed up because someone who knows a lot about axes, Mr. Robin Wood over in the UK, uh, did a rant, posted a rant on this. Really? Basically, I missed yeah. It. Um, this is a guy who uses axes all day long for sure. breaking out bowl blanks and such. But the idea is, is it is this kind of offset blade where when you swing the axe, the blade intersects the wood and the offset part swings it around and causes the blade to rotate. So essentially it penetrates the wood with the blade and then splits it apart as the axe rotates around the handle. Okay. Well, and, and I, my first thought was, well, don't we already do that with a regular axe? And I guess maybe that was a little technique that I was taught when I was little that maybe wasn't all that commonplace, but I was glad to hear Robin Wood say the same thing. When you swing an axe into a, a log it, you intersect just the way your body mechanics work. You intersect that log at a slight angle to begin with. So what happens is, is when it stops, when it hits that massive deceleration, when blade hits wood, the axe will rotate on its own and kind of self-correct, and it causes a splitting action. That's what axes do. Um, unless you are swinging, kind of standing perfectly in line and swinging the axe from over your head straight down in front of you, Mm -hmm. which is really dangerous and really inefficient, the axe is intersecting the wood at an angle anyway, and that rotational momentum causes it to rotate and split it apart. This better mousetrap thing basically is just a really tacky, nasty-looking modern (laughs) version of something that frankly has been around for thousands of years. So kudos to the guy who came up with a way to market this better mousetrap, but you know, I, I'll just have a regular old American felling axe. Thanks. So I guess I probably should cancel my order. That's already on its way. <laughs> Dang it. Well, now has he has uh who, who'd you say wrote the article? Uh, the rebuttal, the article? rebuttal article. Yeah. Robin Wood. Okay. Now I don't the guy that makes bowls on his pole lathe over in the UK. Gotcha. Okay. Now I don't swing axes, so I don't have a, a place from which to speak on this, but I would wonder like, has he tried it? Like I understand. Oh, I'm sure he hasn't. I, I mean, cause I understand the physics behind the traditional ax split and someone who knows what they're doing with an ax might not see as much need for this, but for the average person, maybe the I don't know, someone who's got a wood burning stove who isn't necessarily someone who's, who's, uh, you know, studied how to swing an ax the proper way. Uh, is there, is there still some advantage you're talking about? Like if you hold it right and swing it just right, that you get that rotational stuff there. Well, nothing, nothing will do a better job of that than having a off center weight that's making that happen, whether you want it to or not. I just I, like, could but that's it- the point <clears throat> you, you do swing. I, I should be clear. It's not a special technique. Um, 
it's the way we we swing an axe because our our you know you have to bring it to one side of your body bring it across the other side of the body and come down it's automatically hitting at an angle right the only way that you can have that blade go in straight plumb dead up and down is to square your shoulders and swing the axe entirely in front of you in which case you're like using all your abs for that i mean it's really right but but could be a lot harder but isn't it possible that this thing does it better Sure, I suppose. I mean, so I'm just saying I understand. Sure, this is how we get it done. But what if this one does it better? I just want to see someone actually, not just the guy selling it, but someone review it and see, does this actually work better in the hands of the average person? Because it does look it, it does look neat. It really it promotes and further pushes that splitting action, which might be valuable. But I, a lot of people uh, commented when I posted it, uh, let me see that in such and such wood. You know, so depending on what wood you're using, it may yeah. not even make a difference. Yeah, because I think he was using beech. Now, the one thing I'll say, I think this guy is Scandinavian of some sort, Swedish or Finnish or Danish, something I like thought. That. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah Danish. Finnish, Finnish. And, and I believe, like, they have podcasts there on stacking lumber. And that's not a joke. They actually do. <laughs> so, like, stacking lumber and firewood is kind yeah. of a is a pastime right, up right. there in, in the Scandinavian north. So there has to be something said about a guy who invents a better axe coming from a country who practically was born with an axe in their hand. Okay. Devil's advocate means it probably does something right. But yeah, it's a good question. You know, in, in you know, European birch, maybe it splits really, really well, but give me some, you know, American gnarly red oak. Exactly. Which, um, or, or maple or something like that. Maybe it won't work as well. But the other thing is, is this isn't like 1999 or four easy installments of 1999. No, I think no. it's like 200 euro. Yeah. I thought someone said three. I mean, it's, it's up there yeah. either way. So uh, the exchange rate, it's, it, that would be what? 275, assuming it's two euro, 200 euro. It's a lot. Yeah. And you could go and buy a Grants for American felling axe for less money. <laughs> Sure. Sure. I just want someone who knows about access to test it. I just, you know, get some hands on and see if it even helps. Maybe it, maybe it induces some sort of repetitive stress risk because it's turning a little bit more aggressively at the end of each, uh, you know, I mean, that could be a problem too. Um, well, maybe this is an opportunity for what didn't our, didn't our good friend Wilbur, didn't he do some, some ax work to uh, do some riving or something a while ago when uh, it had to be like in the past year. Mm, I, yeah. I feel like that. both, he and, and Bob Rozieski like bought yeah. a log to make a, a joint stool, I think. Right. Yeah. So maybe maybe we should get them on the on the job. Yeah, we'll somebody with an extra three hundred dollars should get <laughs> yeah. on this. to waste on this thing. Exactly. <laughs> Not it. <clears throat> Sweet. Well, hey, let's move on to this next one. And this one, there's actually a, a, a few different links in here. Do you guys remember that Bentley video yes. from a little while ago? Yes. No, Charles says that the, while the Bentley video was pretty cool, he says Morgans are just darn cool. And the big thing is they're still made of wood, not just having wood orna- adornments on them. So apparently there was a show called Driven, and they had a segment all about the Morgan. In mm-hmm. fact, there's, like I said, there's three different uh, links that we'll have in here. And this is to uh, celebrate the Morgan Car Company's uh, birthday. I don't remember exactly how old they are, probably somewhere around 100 or so. Uh, but anyways, he was even saying maybe someone should write a book titled Hybrid Auto Manufacturing as uh, uh, as part of going along with some of this stuff. Now, it is neat. I had a chance to kind of go through a few of these videos. While the majority of the course is the whole construction of the cars themselves, you do see exactly how much wood is 
put into each one of these vehicles. Uh, maybe if we pay close enough attention, this might show up on a podcast. Uh, I don't know how I'm getting out of the basement, but it would be kind of interesting. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, definitely one of those that you start watching it and a few minutes go by and you go, what just happened? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Whoa, hold on. <laughs> cool videos. All right, let's move on to our poll of the week by our good buddy, Tom Iovino. He asked the question, what tool do you use for measuring blade and bit heights? And i uh, not going to go through all the individual results because there's quite a few, but the most common at 30% was the combination square. That's actually what I use. Uh, and uh, the least common looks like was the tape measure at 5.3%. So, um, oh. hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people are using uh, relative dimensioning is in there. That's pretty cool. Setup blocks. Have you ever been inclined to use those? Like you see those little kits where they come in with different standardized I don't know. They're usually brass or, or steel blocks. I did on, when I had a router table. Um, okay. I feel like it came with it or something. And I used them a lot. I don't know that I would have gone out and bought them specifically, but it, mm-hmm. it like came in a kit with the lift. And uh, they were really useful, especially the really thin ones, yeah. like the eighth and quarter inch ones. Sure. Those sure. were good. Cool. Yeah. I, I've used them. I haven't used them so much for, for the height as like making sure that there's a specific distance between the fence or something. Uh, the height part, I would still like, I found myself like, am I up too high? Oh, I'm too low. No, high? No, I'm too low. So <laughs> yeah. body position never works. Especially, especially on something like a router table where you've got a single point doing the cutting. So your fence could, you know, it's not like a, a, a parallel fence on a, on a table saw where it's got to be perfectly parallel to the blade. Sure. So you could take that little block and essentially sandwich it between your fence, you know, and then you lock down both sides of the fence and it doesn't really matter what angle the fence is at. It's just, it's it's created that set distance. That was really useful. Cool. All right, let's jump into our kickback where you guys tell us some stuff and things, maybe correct us on some things we've said in the past that might've been incorrect. Who do that? Um, Seriously. You know, it happens a lot. Now, only because oh. we screw up a lot. So it's a lot to correct. Uh, first one we have here is from Nate at Nate's Woodworks. He says, here's some kickback from a couple episodes ago. Roberto had a problem with his belt sander. A few years ago when I bought my drum sander, I had the same problem with the conveyor. I tried adjusting everything before calling Jet. After them having, uh, I guess they sent, uh, oh, he did a bunch of different adjustments and they sent him another assembly minus the conveyor belt, uh, figuring something was wrong with it. Uh, what it ended up being was that the belt was wider on one end than on the other, making tracking impossible. They sent Ooh. him a so they sent him a new belt from a different supplier, and it was uh, he was good to go. He said it sounds like it could be the same thing that Roberto's dealing with. Uh, if I were him, I'd buy a new belt from a different manufacturer and give that a shot. So there you go, because we were saying uh, that it wasn't tracking; it kept coming off, no matter what he did, no matter what adjustments he made, it kept falling off. So sounds like uh, Nate may just have the answer for you. So hopefully, Roberto, you'll hear this, and you know what you might want to try. Awesome, thank you. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Well, we have this next one from Brandon, and Brandon said, uh, "I would just like to send out a challenge to those that out there who have whom have carbide helical cutter head on their planer and or jointer. I believe a possible misconception." may have been made the common advantage i keep hearing is that if damage happens to a single carbide insert it's no big deal just rotate and continue on however what if you have significant use on your cutters already carbide carbide may be incredibly hard and durable but it does wear out so i asked to so i asked those to try a test turn one carbide and try a cut I wager the possibility of a fine line on your workpiece if done so. Uh, this should be very much a subject of the amount of use, but how much, I don't know. So food for thought. Uh, you know, and, and I, I responded to Brandon. I think I responded to Brandon. I know I put something out there. Uh, 
I, I understand where this is going because we've heard this from other individuals. This is easily like the third, if not fourth or fifth, uh, similar comment that's come in. And I, I wonder though, how many people are using, say, especially their thickness planers as like almost like a finishing tool? I mean, for me, it is a hardcore milling tool. So while there may be a little bit of a, I won't even go so far as a divot, maybe a line or something. Mm. Again, my plans when I'm done with it anyways is more than likely I'm going to probably either sand it, I'm going to plane it, I'm probably going to use a, a card scraper or something on it. So unless it's like really, really deep as in basically I just made a tongue and groove down this one line on my board, <laughs> right. I'm not really paying that close attention to it. So I'm, I'm kind of curious what others think about that. I asked, um, I asked our mill manager this question. Um, today, actually, because this question came in this weekend, I think. And I was like, hey, you know, he's got a really good point. So I went and asked the mill manager who runs, you know, a couple thousand feet through the planer every single day. There's significant wear on our carbide cutters. And he's like, no, when we get a nick, we rotate it and move on. So, I, you know, it's the same thing, Matt. I, I have a feeling that, you know, not many people are, or we send out that S2S or S4S lumber and somebody's still doing something to it. They're probably sanding it down the line. But I think it was not enough of a difference that there was an actual line visible. Um, right. You know, maybe there, maybe there was a slight color difference. I don't know. It, it wasn't something that, that he would notice. But then again, he's also running a thousand feet through and we tend to be overanalyze every single board because mm-hmm. we run two boards. Well, that's and the other thing I was thinking is, you know, I know we've talked before about, say, when you do get a nick and a traditional straight, straight uh, blade, um, it's nice if we can move the piece over so you completely miss it. But there are plenty of times that I would run it through and it's like, well, there's now I have the opposite. I have this raised bump on my board. And again, it was just a matter of easily coming through with a sander or a hand plane or something and knocking it down. So. But I can't imagine it being that that significant. It seems like it would be like thousands of an inch yeah. versus like, you know, a sixteenth of an inch yeah, or it, a sixty-fourth of an inch. If it's anything, I would imagine it's so minute that it is still going to be less offensive to you than the nick that you're trying to fix. There you go. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the big difference. Uh, you know, the other thing, too, is if you do have that much wear on them that you are changing the actual dimension, then it might be time to rotate them all anyway. <laughs> Right. That's, that's really I, I was point. thinking about that too. I don't know enough about metallurgy, but carbide, I don't think wears the same way as high speed steel or, or any of the other tool steels. I think it kind of stays really, really sharp and then it falls all apart really fast. Um, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of gray area there. Yeah. I don't know either. I, Anyone I, I who knows think- for sure about the properties of carbide and how it would wear, that would be interesting to know. But just from, you know, sort of uh, being in the shop and dealing with this stuff all the time, I just can't imagine it actually uh, like I said, changing dimensions so dramatically that it would cause a really noticeable problem that couldn't be fixed by just saying, all right, well, I guess they're they're all worn out, and now they're also probably dull if I remove that much material to make a dimensional change. Maybe I'll just maybe I'll just rotate them all and uh, I have three more to go now. I think what I'll do is if I ever get into this situation, I, I for sure will let everybody know because I'm going to hand the board off to my wife and go, so do you feel anything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll find out for sure because uh, Samantha will not hold back on anything like that. She's the board feeler in the house, huh? That's it. Trust me. There's plenty of times I'm like, honey. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I don't like where this is going. Must stop. Move on to the next one. (laughs) All right. Well, let's do this. We have one more. Maybe we can redeem ourselves on this one. Alan says in episode number 179, Shannon mentioned he was using the three-part masterpiece finish. Just my two cents, but I'm going to side with Mark on the results of a wax finish. Yay! 
<laughs> I knew you would like that. <laughs> one of you would like it. The other one's like, whatever. Uh, my project looked nice shortly after applying, but a week later, it looked terrible and lost its luster. If you want to keep a close-to-the-wood finish, well, so much for redeeming ourselves on this one. Uh, I recommend the Sam Maloof Oil Poly Finish from Rockler. It takes time to apply, but the results speak for itself. Okay. Well, one week later, and I still have a lovely luster on my project. Um, what I think will be interesting now, I don't know. I mean, this is what, what, uh, Charles Brock has developed is not just straight oil and wax. He's got this, this blend. It's more of a balsamic oil and wax. It's a nice blend of, of herbs and spices. (laughs) Mm. So there, there is a lot more science behind it. And I've specifically spoken with Chuck about this a couple of times there. That was something, I mean, this is what he uses on his furniture, um, now, what I'm trying to figure out is a chair obviously gets a little bit more buffing going on just in daily use. Butt buffing. From, yeah, butt buffing. And, you know, on the, the armrests and, of course, a sculpted piece like the stuff that he makes, it, it just you know kind of screams out to have people caressing it. So a table, uh, well, and, and a table made by me doesn't have as many people clamoring to touch it. So... It'll be curious to see, but so far, um, it, it still looks as, as beautiful as it did when I buffed out the, uh, the final coat. Cool. So it's been, I guess it's not been quite a week. So maybe, I guess it's been about six days. So maybe tomorrow, just all hell is going to break <laughs> loose. Just, yeah, it's you just, just hit that point. Terrible. In which case, Alan, I will email you and say, you know, you're right. It took a week. <laughs> Tomorrow's day eight. What are you going to do? <laughs> we'll see and what somebody's going to look. Something's going to look at Shannon and he's like all itchy or kind of antsy in his chair. And they're like, what are you doing? Can't you sit still? I'm, I'm no, buffing. I'm butt buffing. Butt buffing. What do you think I'm doing? Uh, all right. We got a, a voicemail kickback that I is actually tied in with the other voicemail, but I split it off into its own little thing. This is from, uh, huh. from Bob. Things I learned from the last episode of Wood Talk. Matt likes junk in the trunk and small knobs. From what I can tell from Mark's jokes and voices, he's either losing it or has Stockholm Syndrome. And Shannon is no Mr. Rogers. With all the blowing and stroking things that he's talking about, I never. Hey, thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. See that, Shannon? You went and offended somebody. (laughs) Nice job. (laughs) Finally, we're not the only ones getting it. (sighs) Nice. Good stuff. Thanks, Bob. And uh, speaking of Bob, this is his initial question that he had concerning finishing. So let's just jump right into our voicemail because we only have one here. M squared plus S. Greetings from Bob in Holland, Michigan. I've got a finishing question. Can you use lacquer from a spray can and get good results? I have some small boxes that I want to finish but don't want to add any color to them than an oil-based varnish would. I want the wood to speak for itself. I thought lacquer would be the way to go. I have an Erlex HVLP that I got in one of those Christmas Super Specials, and it's still in the box. I'm not sure I want to use it for the first time on the boxes and with lacquer. Or could I use a water-based poly? I've brushed it before with so-so results. Do you know if the water-based poly can be thin to use in the HVLP? Mine's really the low-grade Erlex. I can't seem to find any information on thinning water-based poly. I really appreciate your help, as always. Okie dokie. So questions on finishing. I'll tackle these real quick. If you guys have anything to add, just jump in. Uh, first question he had was, can you get good results using spray can lacquer? 
Absolutely. There are a lot of people who do it. I've done it on uh, smaller projects like the poker chip trays are great candidates for that. And for folks who don't have uh, HVLP systems, it's a great solution. But you have an HVLP system. So rip the Band-Aid off, uh, open up that Erlex and throw some lacquer in there because you got it for a reason and now's the time to use it. And I think when you spray lacquer, it's a lot more forgiving than people realize. Um, and of course, you know, send me an email. I'd be happy to help you with some tips to get started with it. But it's so forgiving and it's fun to spray if you've got the means to do it. And you do. So I would say stop thinking about spray cans and just go right to spraying some decent lacquer through the Erlex. Uh, water-based is a good option, but... You know, I guess depending on where you live, sometimes it might be the only option, uh, but it's a little more finicky, a little trickier, uh, takes a little more dialing in. He mentions dilu- diluting the water-based finish. You can certainly dilute it, uh, but usually not more than about 10% in most cases, but it tends to be a little bit more finicky. So there's a l- more of a learning curve there. I think if you're getting used to HVLP for the first time, lacquer, traditional lacquer is a great way to get started because of how forgiving it can be. So now's the time to use that Erlex. Go ahead and use it. And uh, I think that just about does it. That would be my vote. Again, water-based stuff. If you're going to go into water-based, do a little research. Try to find the stuff that uh, people claim works You know, more like a lacquer where the layers tend to burn in to one another. Uh, might make it a little bit easier for you to layer that finish um, as you're building it up. But uh, again, ultimately, lacquer, I think, is, is going to be your way to go here. And if and if you don't have an HVLP uh, before I got one, well, actually, I've never sprayed lacquer with my Erlex. But back in my craft show days, I used aerosol lacquer all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I did discover that Watco brand was was really the best. Um, the Rust-Oleum stuff or whatever it is you can get off the shelf at Home Depot, um, it was it was thicker, and I got more orange peel from it. So I don't know whether Watco has a higher amount of of, of solvent in it. But it definitely went on smoother. Um, but it didn't. It wasn't like it built slower either. It just was a better quality product. Yeah. I'm sure there are other brands out there, but I, I did not have good experience with the off the big spot, big box shelf stuff, which I think was Rust-Oleum. Okay, cool. And now we can move into our emails. Let me see. Where's mine? There it is. Okay, first one is from Jimmy Joe. Didn't we read his review? Or at least we an- did. Another- and I think I had the same reaction last time, which is man. I could really go for a sandwich right now. Jimmy Joe. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jimmy Joe's getting some love from Matt's mouth. Whoa. That's not what I'm <laughs> Oh, <doing>. hey. <laughs> oh, jeez. That, that's. Oh, my Lord. That Who was is starting this stuff now. Totally inappropriate, Matt. You should be As ashamed. long as he brings some chips with him, we'll be okay. All right. A client donated two travertine countertops that together would make nearly a four by eight bench top. Besides the granite table saw Matt was lusting after before he got his saw stop, uh, have you seen a granite bench top? Have any, have any opinions on this? Uh, I'll take my answer on air. All right. Well, I'd like to hear from you guys as well. My first instinct with this is a, a surface like that, a solid surface or granite type surface for a bench top is compelling to me for two things, for assembly and for finishing. Because if you spill something on it, it's easy to clean. It's always nice and flat. Uh, if it starts out flat, it will usually stay flat. So it's a nice surface to assembly, uh, do some assembly on. But beyond that, if you're doing sharpening, sharpening, Definitely there you go. Sharpening, Good yeah. option. If you're going to do some scary sharp, you just go right on the uh, the surface there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, it's not but, scary at all. But what I don't like is thinking of this as an actual work surface involving drill bits, uh, chisels, and planes. I don't see it as a very good surface for that because that just sounds like bad news to me. Mm-hmm. So, but the way he describes it, a four by eight bench top, 
that to me sounds like he's thinking about possibly using it as a work surface. So do you, I guess the question I would have for you guys is do either of you see that material as a good option in any way whatsoever for a work surface? No, I, I agree with you totally. The assembly and and maybe anything like that, like a finishing, but not for an actual work surface for for all those reasons. It just mm-hmm. sounds good in theory, but I think in practice, you'd just be like, I should really put some plywood or something over the top of this. <laughs> yeah, I could just see it doing even as an assembly table. I'd be a little leery because it's just so hard that any slight little bit of grit on the surface. Is has no give underneath it, so all it's going to do is scratch your project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, true. I mean, I guess, of course, nobody. Well, I'm not going to say nobody, but if you're assembling, say, a table, and you've got to get to that point where you flip it upside down and you attach the base to the tabletop, hopefully, you're putting a blanket under it anyway. But you never know. Yeah, it's just uh, any little, and and I've got laminate on some counters behind my bench and on my um my sharpening station, mm-hmm. and you know, granite the. Granted, the lemon is not <laughs> nearly say, as hard as the was granite. That a, sounded like a pun um, to me. But still, it's hard enough that the tiniest little bit of grit will scratch up something yeah. because it doesn't embed into the surface. It just rides on the top and it, it scratches things all to hell. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know what? I would say if you can, uh, I've always thought about keeping, like getting a small cutoff that someone's not using, maybe a, a house build in the neighborhood or something. If you can get a small piece of granite like that, it actually makes a great surface for a little sharpening station. And you yep. could use that as the top of your sharpening station. Um, could be something to think about. Yeah, I think when this first, this email first came in, my first thing that I suddenly jumped right into my head the image i had was all those uh scientific counters like when i was in school mm-hmm. and like in chemistry yeah. class oh, and yeah. stuff in labs yeah you pour anything on it it's like yeah just wipe it off don't worry about it. it's not catching anything on fire <laughs> right i never wiped it off i just burnt it off with the bunsen burner there you <laughs> nice. go. they loved <laughs> you i'm sure yeah you were that kid apparently <laughs> awesome Sweet. Well, hey, we have this next question. This came in from Dave, and Dave says, I was thinking of building a Rubo-influenced bench as I'm a hybrid woodworker. I have thought about trying to figure out some way to make the top adjustable so I can raise it for detail work and lower it for handwork. It would. I will also serve as my infeed table for my table saw by default as there's no way around it in my small shop. My current plywood bench is that height, and it is not good for much except for using hand planes. Any chopping or cutting dovetails hurts my back, so I was hoping to avoid that with my new bench. Would you guys try to make the top adjustable or just figure out something else? So, you know, this isn't the first time that we've had a question come up about, you know, how can you make an adjustable bench or what do you think about adjustable benches because there are some on the market. Now, it sounds like, of course, Dave is is thinking of building his own so immediately, my first thought was, of course, there's you could come up with some sort of ratcheting system, but if you don't build it the right way, the first time you go to chop something, it's going to probably fall apart on you or fall down. And there's ways that you could probably create like levelers where you could drop them down and, and, and raise it and lower it as needed. But the one thing that popped in my head, and I think this is going to be my suggestion, is I always think of Jeff Miller's little bench top bench that he would use for, say, some of that fine detail work. And this is kind of kind of like a running joke. I remember the first time I saw the article, I'm like, that's crazy. Who would make a little bench to put on top of their bench? But when it comes down to it, it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. It's the best of, of both worlds. The only issue, and it sounds like maybe Dave's running into this as he mentioned that the bench is kind of going like, to be in the center. So that's why he kind of uses it as an infeed table for his table saw. Of course, space is going to be that issue because you've got to kind of tuck this away 
but having a bench at a given height that works best, say, for some handwork, and then having this platform that you can put on and kind of raise up and have it be solid enough that you could work on it gives you, you know, that, that extra space because you don't need the entire works workbench space raised up. You may only need just a little bit of an area to work directly on. And to some degree, that's kind of what you're getting with a Moxon vice anyways. Mm. So why not, you know, maybe go that route and, you know, who knows, maybe it's one of those things that you could even potentially maybe work it out somehow that it would work as your in-feed table for your table saw also. So you don't have to worry about raising and lowering. I just, that idea of an adjustable height workbench, again, it's another one of those things that in theory sounds really good, but mm, I don't know. It sounds like more of a hassle than it's worth. <laughs> well, and I don't know if he wants to buy a solution, but there is that uh, old adjust-a-bench thing yeah, that's been around forever. Uh, yeah, so that's something I've heard people have good success with. I don't know if that works into your plans because it kind of becomes a very important part of the bench. And if you were looking forward to a certain visual look, you may not get that with this. Uh, yeah, but it Chuck certainly has got one of those. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it certainly works and has been proven to work well over time. So maybe go look, they've got a user gallery on their website. Maybe go look at it, see if that's something you might be interested in. Cause you could maybe just potentially, I know we like to build stuff when we can, but this might just be a purchasable solution. Exactly. I've seen, I've seen a solution where you take um, like a four by four or a laminated up block and essentially hinge it to the bottom of your legs so you can lift up the bench and this thing swings down and adds, you know, four inches of height to it. Mm. And then you lift it up and swing it back out of the way. So, you know, you're just taking like a, a gate hinge type thing and flush mounting that block to the bottom so that it can swing completely out of the way, lower the bench, lift it up and swing it back in place. So I, I don't see why that wouldn't work. I suppose if you're worried about it shifting, you could put some sort of latch mechanism on the inside of the leg. That way it is the whole thing's at the same height, so you could use it as that outfeed table. But I know a lot of people who've gone the bench-on-bench bench route and are very happy with it. Yeah, again, to me, the, the only issue I see with that is just, again, you're going to need some storage space, whether it's underneath the bench or off someplace else, but... I know when I've been at Jeff Miller's, I've, I've played around with the one that he has there, and it's like, this makes total sense. And especially after I've had a chance to use my Moxon for as long as I have. I mean, I, I find myself actually doing them, trying to figure out how I can use the Moxon because I love it having it like almost like up in your face. If you, well, for me, because I'm so short, it's like up in my face. For Shannon, <laughs> it's, it's probably up to his navel. It's waist tight for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if um, who was this, Dave? If Dave is not really sure what we're looking at, check out Steve Branham's blog at closegrain.com uh, or even just Google bench on bench close grain. You'll find it. Steve did a really good version of this. I, I, I think he even modeled it after somebody else, but he's got a really good write-up on it. So it's worth uh, checking that out. Cool. Sweet. Well, I just want to point out that we're heading into Shannon's question now, and Shannon apparently didn't follow through on the theme of it being a workbench question. Oh, so Shannon. Yeah, always got to be the, the odd man out. My bad. Oh, maybe I can try to tie it into a workbench thing here. All right. Let's see what you can do. Now, this this comes from uh, from John Wilson, and I specifically grabbed this question because this is the, um, the, the guy that I shamed into uh, – thinking he was asking about making angled mortises a couple shows ago. And I just assumed he was a power tool woodworker and said that he wouldn't be interested in what I had to say. Uh. And uh, John had actually emailed me after the show and said, that's actually my opinion was what he wanted to hear because he wanted to do it by hand. So I, I have um, 
I, I hand tool shamed him, and that's what he actually was looking for. So my bad. Shannon, we have a no bullies uh, I know. thing here at Woodtop. Seriously, right? totally. What's wrong with oh you? I, I trolled him, and he's I think he's a major in the Air Force, so he's got like air support behind him, so I need to look out. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, John said he recently added a Veritas curved bottom spoke shave to his collection of hand tools. He needed to smooth the concave face of a chair back. So rather than go his normal route, which he would buy a two-inch pattern bit and use a template. See, again, there's the hand tool th- or that power tool thing that's made me think that. Uh, he decided to buy a new spoke shave. <laughs> what the hell was I thinking? I've tried everything, sharpened it, set it up 20 times, tried it bevel up, bevel down, watched the grain, tried thick and thin cut, skewed it, pushed it, pulled it, rocked it forward, rocked it back, mashed it down so hard. The handles that I thought I might break it, tried light pressure, (laughs) cursed, prayed, cursed some more. Basically, he can't get the thing to work right. Sometimes the blade digs in like mad. Sometimes it doesn't cut at all. A lot of times it chatters. So he says, I understand Veritas makes nice, nice tools, so I'm going to assume that it's not the tool. And it's probably me. So he's looking for his advice on how to set up a spoke shave, any advice on practicing technique, um, how, to, how to use it, and is he sharpening it adequately? He says, I'm sharpening it with a 35-degree micro bevel to 5,000 grit on a Shapton stone, which is the same grit, same process he uses for everything else. So I'm going to tackle that first and say that should be fine. I mean, I go to 8,000 grit, but I don't think that makes that big of a difference. Um, I personally use a lower bevel than 35 degrees, but I couldn't tell you what it is because now I do this stuff by hand, but it's probably somewhere in that realm. I don't think that's your issue. If your, if your other edge tools are working just fine, I wouldn't change anything there, especially for a specific little tool. The thing that I think is going on here, John, is you've chosen probably the most difficult spoke shave to start with. Um, <laughs> the fact that it has that round bottom means that it doesn't, um, securely or or consistently register on the sole. So there is a lot of rocking forward and rocking backwards in order to get that cut to engage. And that angle of rocking forward changes dependent upon the angle of the curve that you're trying to tackle. At the same time, shaving a curve into wood encounters all kinds of grain direction issues. You, know, you always want to work downhill, but there are times when even that doesn't work. Sometimes the grain is is really, really weird, and even though you're working downhill, the grain is still rising up against the blade. So there's a lot of grain consideration that goes into play. You could have a weird piece of wood that's giving you trouble. Nine times out of ten, though, it's that as you engage the cut, you get it cutting, you got that angle just right, usually angled forward slightly, Um, As you pull the blade toward you or push it away from you, that angle changes just the way our bodies are wired. Um, You know, unless you're you're keeping your wrists flexible and allowing that angle to change as you push forward, you're going to change the angle of that blade. And because that sole is not flat, the blade can change its angle. It's, It's a difficult shave to master. The best thing I can tell you is light grip is the absolute necessity. A fingertip grip with your thumbs placed on top of the blade. So um, the minute you kind of grab it in your fist, you lose the ability to feel what's happening with the blade. And I think when you don't have your thumbs centered um, over top of that blade, you also can't feel how that blade is cutting. So um, unfortunately, I think probably the best thing he can do to practice is to go get a flat bottom spoke shave. <laughs> And get a feel for that that hand position and that feedback you get through your thumbs using a flat bottom shave. Um, that's 
not exactly the cheapest way to do that, but um, <laughs> you at least get an idea for that fingertip grip and how it works. What I would recommend is um, trying to actually cut a curve into a flat piece of stock. Um, it's going to take a long time to do it that way because you're essentially now hollowing something out. But what you're doing is making a scooping motion. It's at a very short scooping motion, and you don't have enough distance linearly for that angle to change that much on the shave. And you can get a feel for when it cuts and when it doesn't, how you angle it forward and angle it backwards to get it to cut just right. The other thing is, is I find when you're removing stock, trying to remove a wide section of stock is always harder with a spoke shave. So what you want to do is work kind of the edges, the corners down first, and then remove the hump in the middle. The minute you try to take a, a shaving the entire width of the blade or even half the width of the blade, it gets a lot harder, and that's usually where the chatter comes in. If you think about it, it's a very small blade. It's a very small sole. There's not much mass that can deaden that vibration, so it chatters a lot easier. You can defray some of that by skewing the blade, but sometimes that also doesn't work on a curve, especially a concave curve where when you change the angle, you're, when you skew it, you're changing the angle of attack and all that stuff. So try to take off the edges first, then remove the hump in the middle. That'll help a lot with your chattering. When in doubt, resharpen your blade. Generally, when it starts to chatter, it's an indication that it's getting dull, too. So there's, there's a, a couple things there. Um, I, just, I hate to tell you this. Some of it is you just, it's a tough tool. That particular mm. tool is really tough to get a feel for. So light grip, light cut, try to take too much and you're, you're screwed no matter what you do. It just, it's not a heavy removal tool. So I hope that helps, John, and uh, good luck. Well, John, the other thing uh, that I'll mention for me is someone who kind of periodically goes between, you know, hand tools and when, when I just feel like it, um, <laughs> not always right. fully, fully committed to it. There are times with a certain species of wood, depending on what I'm using, that I'll go pick up the spoke shave, take a few strokes and go, never mind, and I'll use something else. Um, he's, he's, it sounds like he, and you did allude to this, uh, Shannon, about possibly being a particularly difficult or gnarly piece of wood. He's working on this one project. What I'd recommend too, John, is pick up another piece of wood, pick up some cherry, pick up a piece of pine, yeah. pick up a few things that are, might be a little more forgiving than this one piece because I have, I have put the spoke shave back on the shelf a number of times. If I got too much chattering or if the wood just was not cooperating, the grain was changing and it wasn't in my favor sometimes you get that chatter in the wrong spot against the grain and what if I was really really close to my line that I was trying to get to and now I've actually just dug into the wood and I've got more work to do or I've uh, overextended my curve uh, which could yeah. be a big problem so um, a lot of times I will actually take a couple of test passes on another piece of wood from the same project you know just to make sure that this this is going to behave well under use with the spoke shave because I've got other ways to do it so I don't have to use the spoke shave, but if I can, in a lot of cases, it's going to remove the material faster. So I like to, and it makes me feel good, frankly, to use it. Uh, yeah. But but I will say there are some pieces of wood that I just say never mind, and you may just yeah. have one of those pieces of wood right there. Mm. Well, and that and that's part of it. Back to this whole vibration thing, because it's such a small sole, because there's such a light amount of mass, because the blade is so small, mm -hmm. it doesn't deaden things like you would find in a smoothing plane. Right. So if you've got a lot of heavily figured wood, it's really hard to deal with. Yeah. But the Veritas spoke shaves, um, and, and we are talking about the bevel down ones here, not that that uh, low angle bevel up blade, the black looking one, um, and like the Lee Nielsen shaves. These are those are fine tools. 
um, they're not really made to take a heavy cut. Now, I suppose the Veritas, you could probably take a heavier cut than the Lee Nielsen, than the Boggs Lee Nielsen shave. But if you have a lot of material to remove, then I say go back to this whole coarse, medium, and fine idea. Grab yourself a rasp, shape that, and and kind of unify, fair the curve kind of to shape with a rasp or something else. There's a couple of other tools you could use, like a draw knife, but that gets into the other issues. Get your curve kind of set and then work on the fine part of the shape. Because the other thing you have, especially if you're coming off of a sawn surface, um, you know, how do we saw curves, whether it's, it's power or, or hand that curve on a bandsaw, that curve on a turning saw is going to be slightly jagged. It's not perfectly smooth. Um, so that shave set on a light cut is going to bounce around as it takes off the, the tops of those, those, uh, I'm doing all kinds of hand motions here. I hope people can pick up what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I can do the, the, the jagged past. The, the tool surface left from the saw, it's going to take the tops off of those little hills and valleys and it bounces all over the place. It's going to be really hard to get that consistent cut. So if you've refined it with a rasp and even gone to an even finer rasp, start with a heavy rasp, go to a finer rasp. So you've refined the surface a little bit more, then go to the spoke shave. You may have more luck that way. Good deal. And, and I would just like to point out that uh, very much like a chattering Spoke shave. People say I'm dull. Also, yeah, and I chatter too much. <laughs> and the problem you're having with the spoke shave is because your bench isn't high enough. Bam! Brought it back to work benches. Boo bam! Oh wow! He Nicely did done. It. Nicely done. Well, well, and I would like to point out one more thing. Uh, since uh, John is a major in the Air Force, I've noticed that there's been less Air Force noise in the background with Mark. So maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's he some strings. Uh, called in a favor or two. Very nice. Yeah. I just heard one go over as you're, you were talking right now. Oh yeah, well there <laughs> just, it is. Nice. He just called up and said, you know. Ground control to Major John, but um, bum. and uh, actually one of our one of our iTunes reviews is from a guy in the Air Force uh, who mentioned something that I thought was kind of cool. Uh, but anyway, that should close it out. And you know what? <laughs> You're just gonna tease us. You're not gonna tell us. No, what it is. I get to it all in due time. <laughs> He's not there yet. Quit rushing him, look, Shannon. Look at that, Shannon. Now. Open up the show notes. Look at where we're at, and look at what's coming next. And I'll walk you through uh, this. You see that? You see that yellow? Us. You see? There you go. And look oh, about the problem th- is Shannon's looking out his window at his next lake. That's the problem. <laughs> That's right. He's playing with his, he's gesticulating with his spoke shave as we speak. That's right. Okay. Uh, so yeah, if you want to support us and I'll get to our story in a little bit, uh, you can do so. Go to woodtalkshow.com and look over in the side column. You'll find those links for recurring donations and one-time donations, which we always appreciate. You can mm-hmm. also go to uh, twwstore.com and pick up your Woodtalk t-shirt. We still got plenty of those. So buy them so that we can reduce our inventory because uh yeah, get like two or three because you know what sometimes you get those armpit stains in there and you don't want to do that when you're going out to dinner so have have your work one and have your nice one Ooh, i like you that idea. we need we need a t-shirt gun for the next show we do for the people that are three feet in front of us yes. <laughs> just yeah. knock them off their feet oh you're a fan <laughs> That'll go over well. now? (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Um, And, you know, you can also leave us an iTunes review. If you uh, open up iTunes, go into the store, search for Wood Talk, and click on ratings and reviews, and you can click that star rating. Like, uh, let's see, got a couple of them here. Wild Deuce, Jamatfu, Ben Fiedler, and Lub K. And Shannon just couldn't wait for this. Here's what (laughs) Lub K had to say. Deployed. 
He says, great show, guys. I spent eight months deployed in Afghanistan. Listening to your podcast was bittersweet. Uh, While it provided a nice break from the life around me, it did make me miss my workshop. Internet with podcasts and online magazines really improves life on the road. Uh, The jets in the background on both ends sort of tied it all together at times. So that's that's interesting. But hey, thank you for your service, Lub K. We, uh, of course, appreciate that. And, you know, I'm always... I'm always humbled by this when, and I've gotten this feedback. I know you guys have too. When uh, one of our, you know, someone from the military emails us and says, you know, I've been watching your podcast or listening to your podcast while I'm deployed. It just helps me to, you know, think about home and, and remember the things at home that I love. It's uh, it, it touches you in a very deep way. And uh, it, it's, it's always been one of the, the things I look forward to the most. And I never thought that anything we do would have any kind of impact on people who are that important. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? So, uh, very cool. We love hearing uh, feedback from, uh, especially from our military. Uh, very, absolutely. very good stuff. Uh, Although Matt- I hate it when they say that it's used for interrogations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> please However stop. However we can serve our country. Whatever, stop. Whatever works. Stop the chortles. Yeah, please. <laughs> that, that explains those downloads from Guantanamo we keep getting. <laughs> right. <laughs> our number one source. Hey, everybody. All right. Well, Matt, how about you give them that contact info and we'll get out of their, we'll stop torturing their eardrums. How about that? <laughs> All right. Well, hey, folks, do you have a comment, a question, or maybe a topic suggestion? You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is woodtalkonline. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or maybe a previous episode or who knows, Maybe there's several of these and you're now in the future. You're going to find all of those over at woodtalkshow.com. So awesome. Great show, guys. Had a good time. Yeah, it was too bad. If Shannon hadn't ruined it with, you know, kind of going off in his dirty mind (laughs) and then missing the topic. Terrible. I I don't think I instigated any of that. (laughs) (laughs) But you're going to get blamed for it. That's my job. Get blamed for it. I just want to get get that thought out there so that people will be like, maybe he did. Yeah. You pay attention to the rest it's of the always, episode. It d- doesn't matter what happened before. It's the last thing you say that sticks in their head the most. So right. now's the time to stick it in there. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. 